Episode 3 seeks to answer the question, what is quantum computing? Topics covered in this episode include experiments that demonstrate quantum mechanics, superposition, quantum measurement, entanglement, and the role of probability in quantum computing. Welcome to Entangled Things, your quantum computing podcast, hosted by Patrick and Cyprian. Cyprian, uh, today we're going to talk about quantum computing and the underlying quantum physics, and we're trying to keep it light. So I think that means that I'm going to be steering us with some questions that I've seen and I've I've had to try to explain. Um, the first one is quantum mechanics. Now I know you've you, I've heard some of your lectures about it, um, and I know you could go chapter and verse, but let's start off with the double slit experiment. I know you're familiar with it, and it's usually the first place I start when I try to explain something about quantum mechanics. You want to talk, start there? Yeah, yeah, sure. And uh, just have to tell you that uh, this is one of the discussions that I, I love about, about quantum computing because the, the basics, the physics, the underlying physics are the ones that actually drive all the processes and all the phenomena that allows us to even discuss about using them for computational purposes. And if you think a little bit about the history of, of, of physics, right, uh, quantum mechanics and quantum physics in general, uh, when they arrived, they were initially like a huge surprise for, for many of the, uh, uh, of the physicists, even for the for the for the great ones, and as you mentioned, one of the uh, interesting experiments that that kind of uh, provided us with a glimpse into this this amazing world of of quantum uh, was the 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 double slit uh, experiment. And without getting into the, the 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 details, maybe I would like just like to say that. Uh, the way light behaves when when goes through uh, two parallel narrow slits initially looked to be unbelievable, right? It was totally against what folks were uh, expecting against what what folks were 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 thinking, right? So before diving into into some of the into some of the details. Uh, I'd like to hear your take, Patrick, on uh, the manifestation of, of this experiment. I would really like to, to, see, to see how, how you, would, you would kind of describe it uh, in terms of why it's weird, right? And why it was unexpected at that time. So this is one of the things that I start with once I get somebody who I'm talking to about this. I don't think you have to understand quantum physics. Um, at a at a very basic you know, at a very fundamental level, you don't have to have a PhD in quantum physics. You have to have an idea of what's going on and what's underneath lying these qubits. And so, the double slit experiment is a great way to explain it. Um, I um, I think it was was it Davidson Davison who did this experiment originally. Um, but the the crux of the experiment is you take a light source, a photon generator, or just a light beam, and you project it at a piece of metal with a slit cut in it. And you have some some wall on the other side that you can observe. 
And if you shine a light on that slit, you get a slit shaped uh, light on the back target. That is obvious. That makes sense. It's absolutely what is expected. So the, the double slit experiment is, is normal up to that point. It's what you would expect. And they, but they wanted to understand whether they were particles or they were waves. Are they, if they're particles, then if you put a second slit in the target, you'll get two slits on the back end, which is what a lot of people expected. And if you, if it's a wave, you'll get an interference pattern, which means it'll be like the waves of the light will go through both slits and then cancel out. So you'll have bars of, of light and dark in a pattern that stretches out. And when they cut the second slit and tried the experiment, they did get an interference pattern, which indicated that that light is a wave. And that seemed like that was great. That was definitive. So they wanted to understand, like, when, how is the light moving? Does it move through both slits at the same time? Does it go through one slit at a time? So they put an observational mechanism, a, a monitoring system on one of the slits to see when the photon went through that slit and how it went through that slit. And when they turned on the monitor, the behavior actually changed. And instead of getting an interference pattern, they then got two slits on the back target, which blew everyone's mind and to this day still does. Because what it indicated is something we're going to talk about in a little while, which is uncertainty principle of measuring something changes its behavior. And, and that doesn't track with the world. That doesn't track with the world we live in. It's, it's, it's the kind of thing that makes people scratch their heads and say, that can't be right. And, and, but now after repeating the experiment many, 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 many times in many, many, many ways, it's the truth. Down at the particle level, you can't know everything about a particle. There's, there's some aspect of its um, behavior that we are barred from knowing, and the act of observing it changes it. Now, that's my understanding, and that's how I explain it. If, am I, am I come missing anything that you would cover, Cyprian? No, no, no. I think that's I think that's 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 great. What I would like to add here is like the shock and awe that that, that this experiment basically produced because folks were really accustomed on being able to easily measure the the characteristics of various types of of objects, right? Measuring the the speed of a moving car, measuring the speed of a planet, measuring the speed of a moon, of a star, of, of, of anything, right, uh, according to the, the classical Newtonian uh, laws of, of physics was kind of a no-brainer. And it was really easy to figure out uh, both the, um, the speed as well as the position of, of these, these, these uh, objects, right? And here comes this experiment that you have, you have described where all of the sudden we realize that if you go uh, low enough in terms of the, the 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 structure of matter, the same laws are not applying anymore, and 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 this was like the the shock that that took the world by 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 storm. And there is a um, very interesting lecture. Um, that uh, comes from Richard Feynman, which is obviously one of the uh, 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 like prominent figures in, in, in quantum physics. And he actually said in that lecture that basically 
all of quantum mechanics can be gleaned from carefully thinking about the implication of the double slit experiment, which is amazing, right? Exactly. It is. It's, it's, Feynman actually is a very good person if you wanted to get more information to listen to his lectures because he's very easy to listen to. Um, he's very, very, very smart guy. Um, but he doesn't get you, he uses a lot of analogies, he uses a lot of examples, which I think is very helpful. Um, so when you, when you start trying to wrap your head around the double slit experiment, it's hard for me in a classroom or in a, in a speaking uh, engagement to talk about the double slit experiment and show it other than through a video. But there's one experiment that you can show once people have the basics and they, they, they've, they started grappling with the double slit experiment, there's something you can show them firsthand that, that illustrates this. That is not a good idea to start with, but that's the, the polarization using polarized um, films. And with this one, let's say I'm speaking at a conference or, or at a, a user group, and I want to demonstrate this. You take three pieces of uh, polarized film, and the, the higher quality of the polarization, the better, meaning the more it blocks light of the, of the polarized version, the better. And so the, if you're familiar with polarized lenses and film, they block out half the light, literally half the light. And they, what they do is they block out light that's going in a certain um, way. And the way to explain this is, is think about light as either going up and down or left or right as it propagates. And so a polarized filter will eliminate either the up and down or the left and right, depending on how you turn the polarized film. So take two of those and align them and put them out over each other and show them in front of a light source, such as the projector. And you'll see that if you did it right, about half of the light is, is gone, is missing when you look through those filters, because the first filter eliminates half the light and the other filter doesn't eliminate any light because they're aligned. It still lets the same light through because it's aligned. As you start turning one of those filters, clockwise, counterclockwise, doesn't matter. You see that more and more of the light starts to disappear until you get perpendicular. And now with a 90 degree angle between the two polarizations, you're blocking all the light. On a really good quality filter, you, it'll literally be a black pot patch. You won't be able to see any light. And what that means is you're blocking all the light that's going up and down and all the light that's going left and right with those two filters. And as you might imagine, taking a third filter and putting it behind these two filters has no effect. You've already blocked all the light. And putting it in front of these two filters has no effect because it doesn't stop you from blocking all the light. But if you insert a filter between them at a 45 degree angle, you get light. And, and the, the, the repercussions of this, so the way to think about this is putting that filter in between the two layers is in effect measuring the polarization of the light. And by doing that, you're forcing quantum physics to change its behavior so that some of the light realigns itself in a way so that it still can get through. At least that's how I think about it. Like, what's your take on the, the, the polarization demonstration. It's it's just another uh, example of of these these weird right phenomena that happen at the uh, at the at the quantum level, and 
there are many variations of, of these uh, experiments. Uh, for uh, instance, uh, just coming back uh, very quickly to the double slit experiment, um, I've just uh, uh, read a few days ago when I was uh, uh, reading something else on quantum physics that, you know that in 2019, Patrick, there was the uh, the, the single particle interference uh, for the for the double slit uh, uh, experiment was demonstrated for antimatter as well, right? It, yeah, yeah. I mean, like it's 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 unbelievable. But coming back to coming coming back to the to the polarization to the polarization experiment, it's it's that class of experiments that shows you how nature behaves in a counterintuitive way right if if you were and i'm i'm doing this quite a lot with people that i attempt to uh, explain um uh, quantum computing and quantum physics to i encourage them to do a thought experiment on how they think the results and matter would behave in either the double slit or the polarization or or others, right? And then I show them what's the actual reality. And every single time, every single time, folks are just like, wow, I would have never imagined this, this is happening. And then the other question that I get a lot, which is which is even more fascinating for me, is the why, right? Folks are asking, yes, but why? And and this is still one of the one of the big mysteries of 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 the universe. We do not have this answer. In fact, the whole theory of quantum mechanics, quantum physics, relies on what we call the postulates of quantum mechanics, which in essence say this is how we observed nature. To behave, we don't know why this happens. We only know that this is the observed behavior and is consistent across many experiments, many iterations of the same experiments, and across different experiments. I have a theory, but I it, uh, hopefully it doesn't enrage anyone for me to state this. But I've I've waffled between agnosticism and I was raised Catholic, and I have a lot of discussions about religion. If you want to say, if you want to see religion in this, I think that you might be able to make the case that the uncertainty principle, which we're going to talk about, and this strange behavior could be the underpinnings of God building a universe where we have free will, um, and yet the universe can be set on a course that's got a, a known destination. In other words, if you, if you, if you want to talk about Einstein, God does not play dice, that actually might not be the case. It might be that in order to give people free will, if there is a God, you have to have this kind of underlying fabric of the universe. Um, if, it, if you take the probabilities, Feynman once said in a lecture that if you, I think it was Feynman, if you take all these probabilities at the, at the microscopic level, at the, at the quantum level, um, most of the time, things do turn out the way we would expect, but occasionally they don't. And so we don't notice when a particle 
radioactively decays because there's so many particles. It's just it's just lost in the storm, but it allows for radiation, something that that might not be that that has to be random in order for it to work the way it does. And so I'm sorry to pull us into this metaphysical um, spiritual side that we probably won't do that very often. But that's my thinking is if when I find myself feeling spiritual and thinking about things, this this actually is reassuring because I wouldn't have invented it this way. It's counterintuitive. It doesn't make sense given our experience. But then again, our original senses told us that the earth was the center of the universe and that was wrong. So we should expect to be surprised as we dig deeper into reality. Yeah. Yeah. So that that's that's actually very interesting that you 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 mentioned, Patrick, because um I I kind of have like a similar approach for for this. And I'm as I'm looking through uh, history, for 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 example, right? Um, and I've been asked uh, quite some times, like, do you believe in God? And folks are are sometimes kind of uh, um, uh, not expecting my answer. Yeah, not expecting my answer to be to be yes, because I am a mathematician. I'm 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 a, a, a computer science guy, right? So it's it's unexpected, and then. I try to to explain them that that the way I see the world, if you're thinking about um, like a, a single line and an interval on that line, right? Um, inside the interval is our tangible world. Outside of it is is God. And uh, it's true that through time, this interval became became larger and larger, right? Think about our ancestors when they were seeing lightning, right, or something like that. They they believed that was that was God, right? Today we understand what lightning is, and we understand a lot of things. So the interval is is expanding, but my theory is there is always something beyond both ends of the interval, and the ends for me are going deep down into the structure of the matter or going very high up in terms of the organization of the matter in the universe so you go you go deep enough and at some point right everything that we know breaks because we can't have any we can't do any kind of of statement on what is energy, for example, right? We understand some quantum stuff. We understand how energy manifests itself, sometimes in the forms of in the form of matter. That's true. You go slightly deeper than that, and the only thing you can you can say is you kind of raise your hands and you say, I don't know. That that's where, where God is for me. And on the other side of the spectrum is as you go in the kind of the greatness of the universe, right? We can we can see, we can understand that it it expands. We have a theory that it's about 13 point something billion uh, light years. But beyond that, again, you only can raise your hands and say, I don't know. Again, that's the other kind of the the other uh edge where I say, yeah, beyond that, that's 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 God. Right. That that's my take on. <laughs> so we we both I agree with you, and and we're both dancing around the uncertainty principle, Heisenberg, uh, and we're not talking Breaking Bad, uh, although it is a great show. <laughs> um, so Heisenberg principle. I think most people have heard of Heisenberg um, and the cat 
and things. But but really, it's a duality of I don't know until I measure. I can't know until I measure. And this, for me, is the fundamental of what quantum computing is actually built on. Everything else leads to the uncertainty principle. Everything else leads to Heisenberg double slit experiment, polarization, the the the, the probabilities. All of this leads to the fact that you can't know something until you measure it. And when you measure it, it will be one or the other, even though it really might be a, a, a superposition, of, um, a, a percentage. And so Heisenberg uncertainty principle is the underpinning of all of this, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And from a mathematical point of view, but which is still, still I believe, easy to, to understand, is if you think about certain uh, pairs of properties, let's say for particles, right? Let's think about the two most common, position and momentum, right? The uncertainty principle says that there is a fundamental limit. Nature has, has, has slammed the brakes, so to speak, on the accuracy with which we can determine the pair, right? And what I'm trying to say here, in other words, is it's exactly the same thing you said, right? You will be able to understand more, or let's say to measure better the position of the particle, which means in the same time you are losing information about its momentum or vice versa you understand more about the momentum the movement of the particle and then you understand less about its its position again it's it's totally counterintuitive right it's totally counterintuitive but as you said it's this is the 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 essence right this is the 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 foundation that actually governs most of quantum uh, mechanics. It's almost like you had two sensors, one that senses the velocity of a particle and one that senses its position. And the more you turn one up, the more it interferes and, and causes the other one to be less accurate. And it's, we can't have both of them be accurate. That's, that's the limit. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, you actually, you, you, you actually cannot, cannot do, do that. And the way I try to, to explain this is think about somebody shooting an, an arrow, right? And that obviously the arrow will have a speed, will have a velocity, hence will have a momentum. And at any given point in time, it will have a position. Now imagine yourself having some superpowers that you can travel along that arrow and perfectly match its its speed, right? At that point, you will exactly know where the arrow is, right? Because it will be in front of you. It will be near you. But at the same time, because now you are one with the arrow, you will have absolutely no reference and no idea about its, its, its speed, right? Think about it the other way, right? You're getting farther away from the arrow and you are watching it, imagining that you can do that if the speed is not too high. 
you're watching it in 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 motion because you can watch it in motion you can clearly assess its speed but you will not be able to exactly pinpoint the accurate position of the arrow now obviously when we're thinking about large objects like an arrow right this this is still yeah but i could look at it at 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 uh uh, let's say very short uh, periods of time, and then I'll know exactly where it is. Well, define exactly <laughs> in the world of, of of quantum. Yeah, you just have to. At this point, I think we have to accept. I would rec- recommend for all our listeners that they should go and you know look at videos and lectures and and try to understand the double slit experiment, polarization, Heisenberg. But but let's move on to how this is actually used. How do you use, how do you turn something this crazy into computational power? We understand binary computing is on and off magnetized or demagnetized bits. And, and everyone listening probably knows quite a bit about that. We won't get into that. But how do you take this, this stuff we just talked about and take its superposition quality, the fact that we don't know a value until we observe it, and turn that into some kind of qubit? How's that work? Yeah, actually, we've I think we've already uh, touched on this in our previous episodes. That the core of of quantum computing is the the qubit, and the the huge difference here is that a system that describes a a qubit will actually be able to have any position between the two fundamental or the two base positions while a classical bit will will only be either zero or 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 one a quantum particle that you typically use to implement a, a, a qubit when it is in a superposition state it's basically going to be a linear combination of the the base or what we call the, the the ground states and what's phenomenal and and mind bending uh, as as you mentioned is there's no way to learn anything about that state until you look at it the moment you look at it it collapses the term is collapses and that's how quantum measurement actually is 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 happening so. These are some of the interesting core properties of these building blocks. And then the fun part is take that and build a computer. <laughs> so, right? right. So what you've described is a binary state. Either the, the, when you do the, the, when you, when the superposition collapses, it collapses to one of two states, which means you just have a binary bit. And so the secret sauce seems to be if I measure that value repeatedly a probability starts to arise so uh, you know an example would be let's say you have a uh, a jailer and you're only allowed to be in bed or sitting at a desk reading but we know that you could be anywhere between those two states at any time but when the jailer comes to check on the prisoner the prisoner is smart enough to always jump to one of those two positions but if we want to find out where they really are we just do that same measurement over and over again. And if if 25% of the time we measure the patient, the, the prisoner to be in the bed, and 75% of the 
of the time they're in the desk, we conclude that they're 75% towards the desk and the, uh, their, their actual position is 75% towards the desk. And so it's this repeating of the same measurement that emerges with a value that's not binary. Now, I, I don't confess, I don't, I don't presuppose to understand exactly how that's done in all the quantum machines that are out there, but, but I'd like to understand it. Thank you for listening to Entangled Things. Here's a word from our sponsors. This week's episode is sponsored by Pulsar Security. Introducing Sonar, Wi-Fi security as a service. With Wi-Fi being available in most corporate networks, it is imperative companies know what devices are broadcasting within range or authenticating to the corporate network. With Sonar, you'll receive alerts, monthly reports, and access to our team to uncover and help fix your Wi-Fi security weaknesses. Sonar, protect your data. Visit sonar.pulsarsecurity.com entangled to learn more. Well, let's let's first do a little bit of a thought experiment, right? And and let's think we're we're working with with one qubit here. So what happens, and that's what's very very interesting, is that after the measurement, like the the measurement has a uh, fundamental impact on the qubit in a sense that once you measure it and collapses, it stays forever in that collapsed. State. So what happens with the with the machines that, that we're building today, there is a special kind of operation that is called a reset operation, which actually can reset the state of that particle of that of that qubit so that you can you can take the measurement again. So in practice, what you would do is you set your qubit to a state, you measure. You reset the qubit, set it to the state, you measure. You set it, re- reset, set it, measure, right? And as you mentioned, you need to do that a very large number of times to get an approximate estimation of, of, the, uh, of those probabilities. Now, the interesting challenge here, Patrick, is this does not actually work in practice for implementing algorithms, right? If, if, you knew, if you knew need to do this kind of things a very, very large number of times to get those things, that will not help you in kind of getting those significant Im- Im- improvements. This is one of the core challenges in in designing quantum algorithms but that's that's a topic for for another another discussion i just wanted to highlight this very interesting thing yes you can find an approximation of those probabilities by doing repeated measurements but for practical reasons that will will not work so we actually need to think differently about quantum algorithms and about using these properties of of qubits to implement uh, effective and efficient algorithms. Yeah, this is and and this is where we're going to be spending lots and lots of time in future episodes diving into occasionally. Um so so you've just talked about quantum measurement and we've talked about qubits and and probability a little bit. 
Um, before we move on, the last thing we want to talk about is entangle. But before we get there, is there anything else we should cover on quantum measurement and qubits versus probability? Well, I I dare to say that we 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 covered quite 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 a lot. The one thing that I would like to add here, though, is just to provide to our listeners a little bit of of glimpse into the real power of qubits, which is in their numbers. So think about if you have two bits in classical computing, each bit can store either a one or, or, or a zero. That means that with two bits, you can actually manage four possible values. Zero, 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 one, one, zero, one, one. Unfortunately, you can only work with one of those values at a time, right? You can't work with the values at the same time. Now take two qubits in superposition, meaning that each qubit can be one or zero or both, beating any combination of them. You can actually represent those four values simultaneously because they are kind of embedded into the state of those two qubits. Now, think about this, right? With three bits, you can work with one state out of eight, but with three qubits, you can work with eight states. Now, think about what happens when you go to tens or hundreds of, of, of qubits. That is, uh, and the, this probabilistic behavior is one of the one of the core strengths of qubits one that that kind of provides a lot of promise for those significant advancements that quantum computing uh will provide right it's like a single bit doesn't let you hold host a number with a range from 0 to 4 billion you need 32 bits for that but a qubit could and a qubit could actually host a number from zero to infinity. It's it's actually, yeah, it's providing you an exponentially increasing uh, number of states that you can work with simultaneously. That That is the, if, if there would be one thing that I'd love for our listeners to, 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 to remember is that with classical bits, you can only handle one out of the possible states as opposed to qubits where you can actually work with all those possible states. That's that's the big difference between classical and quantum computing. Right. So now we get to the weirdest of all things, and that would be quantum entanglement. <clears throat> so it's probably, we named the podcast after this because it's so crazy. Um, and, and so let's take some time and talk about it. The idea not the idea, the, the, the phenomenon is that I can take two particles um, and I can do some magic to them and get them entangled such that if I take the particles and separate them by any distance, they will continue to reflect each other's uh, experience. They're, they're Corsican twins. There was an old story called the Corsican twins where if you hit one, the other would feel the pain, um, usually done as a comedy. This is similar to the same thing. It's it, If I take two 
photons and entangle them and then take one to the International Space Station and keep one here on Earth, then anything that's done to one will be reflected in the behavior of the other. But when I've talked to you about this, you've you've told me, and I've I've done some research to back it up, that this isn't the basis for uh, an instant quantum communication across any distance. In other words, it's not a faster than life life faster than light communication mechanism, which I'm still trying to wrap my head around why it isn't. But yeah, yeah, that uh, I I have to confess to you, Patrick. Like I believe entanglement is the the weirdest of all in terms of things that are happening in in the world of 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 quantum because. Again, given our very limited three-dimensional understanding of the world of space, of, of, of the universe, even if we add the fourth dimension as time, it's really very, very difficult to grasp with this idea that you can have two entangled particles, quantum particles, you separate them by any distance, uh, centimeters, meters, kilometers, light years, whatever you think of. And among other things, if you collapse one of the particles, the other one will instantly collapse as well, right? That's, that's uh, I, I confess, even my head spins just when, I, when I'm thinking about it. And then I remember that that principle that I've, I've learned a few times ago is forget about the why. Right, accept that 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 it works like 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 that. Now, as you mentioned, uh, people were quick to 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 postulate that oh, this actually means that we could send information from one point to another instantaneously, which incidentally means that we could send information faster than the speed of 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 light, right? And actually, this is this is not true, because the collapse of that particle does not, in itself, carry any piece of of information. Without getting into, let's say the the, without getting into the the details of the mathematics. If I'm looking at my particles and let's say you are on the other side of the planet and you're looking at your particle and we have no idea about the initial entanglement process, so we don't have that information. If I'm looking at my particle and and I see my particle collapsing, right, I still need one classical bit of information coming from you to me in order to basically understand the whole the whole process i know it sounds weird right but i encourage our listeners to 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 look up and and to to search about this bottom line is with entanglement in order to actually learn something useful about the entangled particles you will need to transfer one bit, one classical bit of information between the two points in space where those particles are located 
And that, according to current knowledge, cannot still be done at speeds that are uh, faster than the speed of light. And, and that's, that's the current limitation on how we can, why we cannot do that. Because you still can't get that bit of communication to, to exceed the speed of light. You still need to broadcast it through some other means. Through through some yeah yeah through through something to some environment to 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 some kind of 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 context in which that that needs to 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 travel right yeah we're we're gonna revisit this one because this is this is one of those things where it's it's it seems like it should work but now you know I I understand the argument for why it doesn't but it it's hard to get, it's hard to accept after you've accepted everything else so Einstein called entanglement spooky action at a distance um so it's almost like you, you you'd think again it's dangerous to use normal rationalization on anything quantum but it's it's rational to think well what if i prearranged with you that i would only measure my qubit if something happened and then you would be able to see that your qubit changed but that 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 presupposes that this is a much simpler process than, than we're thinking about. So we'll probably have to revisit this again. Um, yeah, yeah. And uh, just ju- just to add a little bit to 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 this, right? Um, there is uh, a known result in 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 the theory, which is called the no communication theorem, and and yeah, the no communication theorem uh, states that during the measurement of an entangled quantum state, right, it is not possible for one observer by making a measurement of a subsystem of the total state, meaning that measuring one of the one of the, the, the entangled items, right, to communicate information to the uh, another observer. That's a fancier way to say that if you are measuring one state and and the state collapses right then you cannot send me any kind of information via via this process my particle will also collapse but there is there's no exchange of information between the two of us it, it's not like a bell goes off to let you know that it collapsed you'd have to measure it and then see it's collapsed, but you wouldn't know that that meant that it was measured on the other side because it would collapse if you measured it anyways. Yeah, yeah. That's how I think about it. So yeah. it's not like it's a light. And if I, if, I, if I read it on Earth, then a red light goes off on your side. It doesn't work that way. You'd have to know. It's that bit of communication. Someone have to send you a signal that, okay, now it's time to read your, your bit. But if I could get that communication to you, I wouldn't need the bit. I wouldn't need yeah. the um, the quantum particle, so I'm sure everyone's head is spinning a little bit. Um, we're about to wrap things up. Anything else on entanglement? I think because we named the podcast after, I'm sure you can expect that we'll be talking about it again, uh, and oh, maybe yeah, quite often. We'll, we'll we'll be discussing. Obviously, we'll be discussing these in in more detail, and I'm I'm convinced that that uh, it will make a lot of sense to discuss the no communication theorem uh, specifically in in a in a dedicated in a dedicated podcast because that's 
one of the questions that I, I, I get a lot, exactly along these lines, like I get the, the concept of entanglement, but I'm still puzzled on how come that you cannot exchange information with this. Yeah, we keep, all of us seem to keep coming back to, well, what if you did this? Or what if it, what if it worked that way? Yeah, exactly. Uh, who knows? Maybe somebody will break that, break that uh, barrier someday. Um, the way the podcast is going to evolve is these first episodes are really about setting the groundwork, setting the basis. And for those of you that are already very well-versed in quantum, we hope that we at least do it in an entertaining way, or, or you can just skip these early episodes. But eventually, we're going to be digging into the news of the day, uh, new developments, uh, interviews with people who are actually shaping this industry, and occasionally going back to the basics uh, when it makes sense for review. Um, we really enjoy doing this, and uh, it's always great to talk to you, to you, Cyprian, about this stuff. This is one of my favorite topics, and you're one of my favorite people to talk to it about. Anything else that we want to foreshadow about where we're going to take this podcast before we sign off? Oh no! I think you I think you described it described it perfectly. Um, if if you're like a, a, a seasoned quantum computing uh, uh, a person, right? The most that we can hope for is to entertain you with some of our uh, more simplified takes and and more like like uh, closer to uh, humanly understandable sentences and and approaches. What we want to do with this podcast is at some point when we'll have uh, a large enough number of episodes, if you take a step back and look at it from episode one all the way to um, um, later episodes, you will see that it has some kind of logic so that at some point, if you would want to do kind of like a crash course, uh, light introduction into quantum computing, you would be able to take them in order and they will still make sense up to a certain point. Amen. Well, as usual, great talking to you and we'll see you next time. Absolutely. See you next time, Patrick.